it's so wonderful to be here with you and with all of you this evening um, as we get to hear from a legend, a dear friend, Professor Lillian Bevere. So um, I just want to say on a personal note, I first met Professor Bevere when I was an admitted student visiting UVA Law for the first mm -hmm. time. Um, and uh, now I'm low these many years later, I uh, live down the street from her and have have been so lucky in the years in between to be her student and uh, and to learn from her then as a as a fellow teacher. Um, and now I'm so excited, Lillian, to get to talk with you um, at this fireside chat. We don't have a real fire. We have a virtual fire, I guess, today, but um, uh, I, I'm excited to be here with you beside this virtual fire to, to have a little conversation. Thanks for being here. I'm delighted to be here, Leslie. It's wonderful to see you and to be with everybody who's here. Um, I'll try to give some life to the questions that you're going to be asking me. <laughs> that sounds great. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, I wondered if we could get started just with you telling us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, where you went to school. How did, how did you get started? Um, I grew up in California and I went to, uh, I went to Stanford undergraduate for a couple of years and then I went back east to Smith College and came back to California for law school at Stanford. And I did several, um, several jobs right after uh, law school. I worked in the development office at Stanford University. I worked for a professor who had a, um, a contract with the FAA and the ABA and we had a, did a very intensive two-year study of airport noise. It was absolutely thrilling, as you can imagine. And we came up with some, we thought, really interesting ideas. It was an interesting project, actually, just at that level to be a, a very young person watching the sort of big guns in the ABA and so forth, trying to work this through. Um, turns out that Warren Christopher, who did become Secretary of State under, was that, I guess, Bill Clinton, if I recall right, um, was the ABA liaison. So I got to know him at that time. And then I went into teach, then I went um, into practice and I was in practice for two years. At the in the meantime, I got married and had two children. Um, so I had these little kids and um, I was not very interested in practice. And I went and I took a leave, excuse me, I took a leave of absence from my practice. And I went to two professors who had been interesting to me and they both said, you should try teaching. There's an opening at the University of Santa Clara. It's just down the street. Um, it was 20 minutes away on the freeway. So I did, and that's how I got started in teaching. And it's important, I think, and hard um, to remember what a long time ago that was. It was 1970. Um, you, know, you know the story that there just weren't that many women in law. And the fact is women were not interested in law. They, I mean, the reason there were only five of us in our law school class was we were the only five women who had any interest whatsoever in becoming lawyers. It was just not something that women did then. Um, and for a variety of reasons, they didn't want to, they, were, they didn't think that they could, they didn't, there are just all kinds of reasons. And I think in part because there, were so few of us 
the fact is that we were treated rather well because we were not at that time, as I look back on it, we were not at that time perceived to be a threat, competitive threat. There weren't enough of us to, to have the men looking over their shoulders and thinking, oh my God, here comes this wave of really smart people. We better get working harder. So, um, so anyway, that's how I, I went to, into teaching. There were a couple of women in, at, at the Santa Clara Law School. There weren't any at UVA when I got here. So that's the beginning. I mean, I'll tell you anything you want to know, but I don't know where, I don't know where it becomes interesting and relevant for everybody. It's all interesting. It's <laughs> all interesting. May I ask, how did you decide that you wanted to go to law school? What was the appeal for you? I took a course in constitutional law at Smith, and it was just completely fascinating to me. So, uh, the, you know, at that time, you had it, it seemed to to women at Smith. And I don't think I'm overstating this reality that you had a choice. You could get married. Well, I didn't even have a boyfriend, so I wasn't in that position. You could become a secretary. You know, a lot of them went, a lot of women went to New York and Boston and became secretaries or went into publishing and that sort of thing. Or you could um, teach elementary school. That was a very common career path. Or a few of us took the foreign service exam. But I had a friend at Wellesley and she said, oh, let's take the LSAT and just see what happens. So we did. And I did fine. And so I applied to law school. It was kind of that I sort of knew that law was going to be fun. It was, it was done out of, I mean, there was not really a career plan there. It was just, that's what I'm going to do for the next three years is go to law school. So, so I did. <laughs> wow. And when you started teaching, what subjects did you teach and how did you develop your expertise? What yeah. was that something that was foisted upon you or did you get a choice about what it was that you wanted to focus oh, it on? It was foisted for sure. Um, when I, when, um, when I started, um, here's just an interesting factoid. The first faculty meeting I went to at the University of Santa Clara Law School took place, I had not started yet, but I'd been hired. It took place right after the Kent State um, debacle that had happened. And there was then, as there would be now, I'm sure, just considerable hand-wringing and people were very, very upset about it. And, and the faculty decided that they weren't gonna give exams to the first year students because they were so unhappy. Turns out that was an unfortunate decision from the point of view of those kids because they had a very high bar failure rate when after they finished law school. But of course, it was done with the best of motives by the faculty and I was just a little uh, surprised anyway, that the faculty would do that. But um, so I taught uh, a class called, well, I taught legal process from the materials that had been produced by Hart and Sachs. It was in a loose leaf binder and it was um, it was a disaster of a class. I don't think it's ever worked in any law school that's tried to teach it from those materials. They're, they're, <clears throat> they're very interesting, but law students just hate them. 
And I can understand why they don't seem to have any direct relevance to what they're there in law school to learn, which is how courts decide and how you interpret statutes and what the law actually is. They're very at a very high level of abstraction and theory. And theory just wasn't part of the law school curriculum back in 1970. Law and economics hadn't come on the stage. Critical legal theory hadn't come on the stage. There weren't these, this massive federal legislation hadn't been passed yet. So it was a whole different world in law. Um, and so legal process just seemed, um, if, it, if students didn't find it frivolous, they just thought it was completely irrelevant and wholly impenetrable. So they had no idea what they were being asked to learn. So that was kind of a hard class to try to teach. Was not a great success, but I taught also property. So, and that was interesting and, and fun and not something that I would have ever um, thought that I would enjoy, but I ended up liking it. And then I taught, I guess I taught constitutional law as well, second, second semester. So those were where, those were, those were my teaching duties. And I probably could have taught anything I wanted to teach but I was such a novice in terms of even thinking about this as a career. Again, it's important, well, not important, but it's relevant to my, to my telling you about what happened to me that at that time, um, uh, there were no, there wasn't, there wasn't theory and there wasn't much law. And so the path from beginning law professor to tenure was not very difficult. I wanted to write. I knew I did because I was becoming more and more interested in, in particular constitutional theory. And, um, but I remember in my being in my office one day when the Dean came in of the of in law school and he said, um, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to write this article. He said, why? Why? Why bother? Because you don't need to. So I knew I wanted to get out of there. So it was good to have an opportunity to come to Virginia and at least try my wings here. Can you uh, tell us about how that happened from Santa Clara well, to UVA? Once again, you know, it, it's, um, I was lucky. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm both unhappy about this and of course, completely grateful for the timing of it. It turned out that Everybody at that time was talking about women. We need a woman. We need a woman. Got to have a woman. Got to have a woman. Got to have a woman on our faculty. So Virginia didn't have one. Huh. And there I was. So they invited me to come back for, for a year. And I did. So and then I ended up staying. So yes, I was plucked from and it was a I was both a victim and a beneficiary of affirmative action. And I had very mixed feelings about that whole thing. I didn't know, um, there wasn't any escape from, from that. You know, I could have said, well, fine, I'm not gonna be a lawyer then. If, if, if the only way you're gonna pick me for something is because I'm a woman, then I don't have any choice but to either take that and be grateful for it or to say, well, I'm not gonna do this job. I would like to be judged on my merits. So I couldn't, I couldn't work my way out of what I perceived then as sort of, it, again, I say it was both a trap and a, and a great benefit because who knows whether I would have been a, I wouldn't have never had that. I don't know whether I would have wanted to be a lawyer. I mean, a, a teacher. 
I mean, it never occurred to me when I was in law school to be a, a professor because there weren't any women. So, so you know, it's just very hard to kind of look back and unwind mm -hmm. the choices that you made in, in that respect. So. There's a question, one of, one of the submitted questions. Um, actually, there are two that I think are relevant to this. And I, I'm going to read them as they're written because I think it's important to capture the the thoughts and the question you know the question of the of the sure. um, student who submitted them and and you know you can feel free to do with it as as you like um so here's the first one what did you tell yourself to avoid becoming discouraged when you had so many men who doubted your abilities well you know here's the thing I've thought about this a lot um, I didn't need men to doubt my abilities you know I had plenty of doubts myself. So there was no, I mean, the, the, the task for me was to try to figure out what I was doing, what these, what these, what these laws were, what property law was about and how I was gonna teach it to the, that's, that was really hard. And if I tried to think about whether I could and spend time thinking about that, then, I would have gotten so distracted by self-doubt and worry that I would never have been able to even get a beginning on how to teach and what to teach and whether it's fun and whether I can do it. So, so that's one piece of the, of the sort of answer to that question. The second part of it is, you know, the men didn't come up and say, I doubt your ability. I mean, they didn't come up and say that to you. You know, every now and then you would have, oh, there is a person on sort of on our faculty, I think he's retired now, who I have never spoken to since he said this to me, because he said, well, you know, I had you for property and it wasn't that you were so good at it. It was just that you could do it at all, that you could teach it at all. Well, I have not spoken to him since. I thought it was such an insulting comment and so ridiculous. But I mean, that I, you know, what that reveals to me is this underlying doubt that was there. And when I came to Virginia, you know, there were a lot of old, old, they were, I mean, they were, they were men in middle age approaching, you know, they were people, I'm sorry, Leslie, you know, sort of where you are in your career and past, you know, past. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are getting there. And so, oh yeah, I know they, it. But they couldn't, they could not imagine. It was, it was just simply, they could not imagine what a woman could do as a law teacher, that she could, they could do it. It wasn't that they thought that we were stupid. It was just that they couldn't believe that we could do it. And so the fact that they let us, you know, I mean, I, I don't mean to be, um, to sound so, uh, well, they did, they let us, they, they were persuaded that, okay, fine, this is happening. We've got to have them here and then we've got to let them teach. So, but it was for them, for many of them, just a complete reversal of everything they thought about the way the world was organized and who should do what and who was capable of doing what. So that transformation in expectations of women's abilities and their role has, I think it's almost complete. I mean, I think there may be sexism. There probably is. I'm sure there is. I don't want to 
suggested that there's not, but it is of a different nature from what existed before. Uh, in when I was starting out, it was uh, just a sense of this is this is this is just wrong, just wrong. Women shouldn't be doing this. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know why they think they can do it, and probably they can't. So, so that was something. But they didn't. Again, for the most part, and this gets back to the question: they didn't. If they doubted your ability, you only got hints like that, sort of every now and then. For, for the most part. And, and I do remember being told um, when, when, when a professor here visited my class, when they were trying to decide whether to hire me and keep me there, keep me at Virginia. And he visited my class and he came in. He was a pretty good friend, had become a pretty good friend. And he, he said, I don't know how you stand it. And I said, what? He said, they're gunning for you all the time. That's, all, that's what they're doing. And I thought... Well, kind of, I wondered about that. You know, I wondered why sometimes it felt like there was a lot of pushing and pulling. Um, so, so there was that. But, but again, I found that it, the most useful way to overcome any of my own self-doubts, as well as other people's doubts about me, was to try to figure out what, what I was teaching what you know what was this about and how could i help students understand it so so that was that was that one and also here's another sort of story about um when the when when how do you overcome your doubts when the men are doubting you so much um when bill clinton was looking for a an attorney general he was determined to have a woman attorney general and the first one he identified was a woman named Zoe Baird. And she had, she and her husband, her husband was a professor at Yale Law School. And they had a son who was four years old and a nap for the son. And during the course of the confirmation, you know, the vetting process of Zoe Baird, the, it was discovered that they had not paid social security taxes and so forth for their nanny. This became known as Nanny Gate because we'd had Watergate, you know, it was one of those gates. And so there was a big swarm of publicity about this problem with Zoe Baird's nomination. She, um, I remember just as it was very clear to just about everyone who was observing this process, that she was in big trouble and she was not, it was not, she was not going to be confirmed. But she came out of a Senate hearing and she said, it's going great. It's going just great. They were really nice to me. Well, yeah, <laughs> they were, but that didn't mean that they were going to vote for her or that they were going to support her or that they were generally supportive. So there's always this sort of, there's the public thing that people say to you and then there's what they think of you and what they're, so, so you can't always judge people's understandings and their, whether they actually respect you by whether they're nice to you or not, or treat you well or whatever in that sort of setting. So that's a very complicated answer to what was a pretty, pretty simple question. 
but it wasn't at all. <laughs> it's an these, interesting question. These are always these are always complicated. They're just always complicated problems and challenges. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. There's there's another question that that maybe follows on, um, which is a, about a particular way in which um, this can manifest. It says there are a lot of instances, both in law school and the workplace where women are criticized or face backlash for projecting a number of qualities that are praised yeah. when men exhibit them, assertiveness, confidence, et cetera. How would you recommend addressing these situations and standing yeah. up for ourselves without being perceived as doubling down on that criticized trait? Yeah, I think that's the hardest possible question. I just do not know what the answer is. And I, part of my difficulty in answering it is that I worry about any young professional who is thinking about what other people are thinking about them so, and whether they are being perceived this way or that way or the other way. I, I, this may sound Pollyanna-ish and so, and, and I hope that it's not just too crazy for, uh, you know, for people to, understand what I'm trying to say. But um, I think the important thing to do is to always try to be, um, first of all, I think being a lawyer is hard. And there's stuff that you have to, you have to be paying attention all the time to the substance of what's going on. And if you're in a negotiation or if you're in a meeting or if you're in any sort of encounter with people who are um, your superiors or your colleagues, um, you, you don't want to be too distracted by how you're being perceived. Of course, that's silly in a way, because of course, you're going to be thinking about how you're being perceived. And you're going to be thinking about not coming across in too aggressive a way, because every move you make, every sort of um, way in which you behave is going to affect things down the road. Nothing is its own thing. You know what I'm saying? Nothing, nothing has no consequences and no behavior has no consequences. So, and it's important to be aware of that and to take a somewhat longer view than this meeting or this encounter. So I'm, I, I, I know the problem that is being described and I have great sympathy for um, for the difficulty of, of that, um, that dilemma that it puts, uh, that women feel in terms of, of their behavior and their, and all I can say is that what I've just tried to say, which is you have to pay attention to what you're doing and you have to understand that um, if you have to fight for a client, you have to fight for a client. And it doesn't matter whether the other side says, oh my, wasn't she bossy or this way? You have to do that, that's your job. So obviously you wanna do it in the most effective way and how you, how you structure that, how that comes across. It's, it's hard, but it's part of the job. So that's the only advice really that I can, I can give. And I, I don't know that it's helpful as a strategy for the particular question that is, you know, that is being asked in terms of, I mean, I, I take it that the question has something to do with modeling behavior as a woman, right? And sort of, um, 
but I really can't say more except, except than, than what I've said. And if you need me to clarify, I'd be happy to try to do that. It, it is a, it's a tough, it's a tough question that gets said maybe a larger phenomenon that it can feel as though there's not a lot of margin for error or margin for difference, right? So that, you know, there's a particular way that you're supposed to be and that's a very constrained kind of um, set of qualities and deviation is maybe judged more harshly if you're a woman or at least it can, in some cases, it, it, that's the case or it can feel that way. It makes me think a little bit about, um, you know, just thinking about the first time I met you, the, the, um, the time that I came to UVA as a visiting student, I met you, I met uh, Liz McGill, and you, you two, I met you at the same time, we had a conversation together, I met uh, Diana Gribben Motz, Judge Motz, who's on the Fourth Circuit, who's an alum, um, I met Beverly Harmon, and, and uh, we got to visit her house there on the, you know, she and her husband lived on the lawn in one of the pavilions, all just enormously accomplished professional women who are also very different in lots of different ways, sort of politically, jurisprudentially, in terms of background, in yeah. terms of outlook, in terms of personality. And I think um, I benefited so much from knowing all of you. And part of what drew me to this institution was that it had so many vibrant women who were so themselves and so different from each other, but also very supportive of each other and clearly part of a real community in the true sense of that word. And I think, you know, the sort of judgment can, you know, it seems taken to its logical conclusion is trying to iron out all of that difference and say, there's, there's one way to be, or that, you know, the way oh. of being a woman is kind of constrained enough that you're not going to get all of the different types of personalities and approaches and right. everything that we all benefit from right well of course that i had i had to i had to be aware of that when i was the only woman on the faculty for 9 years i had to be aware that cuz i know that i'm a little bit different i have you know i see the world differently from a lot of people and my truth isn't their truth which um and i can't I don't want that fact to discourage women from becoming lawyers because they don't agree with me about things. So that's, but, but I had to just, I, I announced it whenever I could. Look, I am this person. Uh, it's true, I'm a woman, but I am this person and I do. And finding my comfort level with that was very gratifying. And it was, I, I sort of, you know, the fact is things like that come with age and they come with experience and they come. And so you don't, you're not, you're not old and you don't have experience when you first start out. But, you know, if you have that sense of what you're going for, um, it, it kind of helps you through. I mean, so, so that notion that, I mean, women are just very different from one another and as men are. And it may be that some of this behavior that women are describing that they get punished for? I don't know. It may be that some of them misbehave. I mean, sometimes women do. They, because I, I mean, I think it's true in particular, it was true for early, for women who were sort of first out of the gate into law. Into law. There weren't very many women and they didn't know anything about how 
how the system worked, how to, how to, um, you know, they didn't know anything about it and they didn't know about the old boys club and the old boys way of doing things so that, you know, practicing law, they didn't know that you don't rush off and get some judicial order because you're disagreeing with the person that you're, that's on the other side. You work things out with the two lawyers and you figure out how to come to some sort of an accommodation so that, um, but at the same time, it is true that women do sometimes get punished for being just more themselves than perhaps makes other people comfortable, right? It puts other people outside their comfort zone. So, yeah. I think we have another question that follows on with something that you were just talking about. Um, and, I, you know, I'll just say that you know, I always appreciated that you as an educator and as a mentor, um, it was clear that you were clear about your point of view and your perspective. And you were also clear that your students didn't have to share that perspective in order to be your students and in order to learn with you. And uh, I think it was probably pretty clear from pretty early on that I had a different perspective and, yeah. and you were always very um, welcoming and, and you're very much yourself, but very much also about a shared project in the classroom and beyond, which right. I always really appreciated. So this is the question. What challenges, if any, do you think there are unique to women in the legal profession who identify as conservative? How did you overcome any such challenges throughout your career? Well, that again, all these questions are interesting. Um, I don't think the challenges for conservative women are any different from men. So in that sense, the, the woman piece is, in my, in my view anyway, I could be wrong, uh, not any different from any other conservative. But again, I have to go back to the time when I was there, when I was teaching and when I was active, starting in Virginia in 1973. I mean, you weren't born yet. You know, I was thinking about Amy Coney Barrett. When she was born, she was born, I was 33 years old. I had two kids and I had started teaching. Okay, so think about the way her and your, and, and you know, the, the life mm -hmm. unfolded and the world in which it unfolded, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was just completely different and it changed so fast. Of course, not completely, and there's still some real rough spots. I understand that, but it changed so fast that um, it's just sort of mind blowing. So, and 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 the context of my answer to to this to this why I bring it up is that for many many years. I mean, first of all, I should start out by saying I was not always a conservative. I started when I was um, when I started. I was extremely liberal. I was very, um, I, I was rabid. So um, I'm sort of like a reform smoker in that way. Um, and I, it's only sort of, I read at one time, I read oh, a, a bunch of books that suggested that, and I, um, I um, when I worked for, um, the professor that I worked for in the ABA project, he, he, it was quite conservative. He was actually, um, he, uh, Reagan appointed him as uh, antitrust 
head of the antitrust department in the justice department. He's the one that broke up AT&T and so forth. And he had, um, he was a major antitrust scholar. So at that project, I was just doing research and writing and stuff for him in a very sort of minor role, but just as I was close and watched him think and how he thought through things and what his approach to questions was, um, I just kind of had my eyes opened. He didn't do it on purpose. I just sort of then came, began to come at questions in a different way. Um, but I wasn't, didn't ever think of myself as political. I mean, I truly didn't. I just, I was so surprised when the first article I wrote turned out to be kind of a right wing screed. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't setting out to do that. It was just, that's where the, that's where my instincts took me. So, um, and I tried to be thorough and so forth. And so, you know, it turns out that that's, that's where I went and it wasn't, um, I feel certain that it was much harder for the law school to give me tenure than I realized. But the fact is that piece of me, um, it's, again, they, my colleagues were always pretty nice to me. So I didn't know that they thought I was crazy. I didn't know, you know, I just didn't. But, um, so where am I going with this? The, the conservative part, the law school was not divided into conservatives and liberals. It wasn't, legal scholarship wasn't divided that way. Even the Supreme Court wasn't divided that way. Even after Roe versus Wade, it took a long time for these divisions that have now come and sort of rendered our world asunder to, to manifest themselves, to develop. So, I mean, and the fact is that um, in your generation and with you and, and the Dean and so forth, the perceptions of things is just, it's, it's a different place when you look at it because you would never say that the law school now is not a political place. It's a pretty welcoming place still. I think it still seems to have, but it always had a place for me. And even, and, and the several other people of sort of my stripe that are on the faculty. And don't ask me how that happened. It was a miracle as far as I'm concerned, because, and it was sort of, you know how, um, well, of course you probably don't yet talk about how you, you and your children live in a sort of bubble because you have, everything is so lovely and, and you don't experience a lot of the things that people who are really much worse off from you experience. I think about my grandchildren and the ones in particular that live in Mill Valley and the life they have is so beautiful and so perfect that um, it's not, they, they just don't, they can't imagine that it's not beautiful in that way for everyone. And, and the reason I'm saying that is I think I lived in a sort of bubble when I was on the faculty. I thought that everybody liked me because I liked everybody. I mean, I did, I liked them. And so it wasn't true, of course, but that's okay, I didn't know that. Um, so the conservative part, and then it did become, I mean, about four or five years, five or six years before I left, it began to become very different. 
And then I'm sure I was perceived as a, as a, you know, what an enemy, whatever. I was somebody whose whose views were not as welcome as I thought they should be. <laughs> we put it that way. It's fine. I mean, it was. I, luckily, I I I left teaching before. Um, before cancel culture came and before the um, microaggression sort of thing started. So it was much easier to introduce um, difficult and controversial subjects and to talk about them openly. It seems to me, I don't know what it's like now, but I sort of have a sense of what it might be like. I have two questions that both pivot off of things that we've been talking about, and I'm trying to make a choice which, where, which way to go first, and I think it'll be this way. What kind of challenging career choices have you had to make, and what factors have you found most helpful when making those choices? You know, these are really great questions, and they're, they're just very, oh my God, how, how did I do that? I mean, how, did I... Um, I suppose the first one was leaving practice for teaching. And I was not cut out to be uh, in law practice. And certainly at that time, I was not cut out for it um, because of things that were happening in my life and so forth. So, um, and I think those two professors that sort of pushed me down to, San, to Santa Clara were, uh, had amazing um, perspicacity, if that's the right word. They, they sensed something in me that I didn't um, know was there. One of them I had taken a summer school class with, and he'd just been, he wasn't the teacher, but he was a student. And in that class, for some reason, I had just had a really good time, yak, yak, yakking the whole time, which I didn't usually do. Um, and the other one had um, helped me a little bit with the paper that I was writing. So, so the career, I just, I needed to do something other than practice law and I had a law degree and so I needed to do something. So, um, and I kind of had a feeling that teaching was gonna work out for me. I don't, I'm not sure why I had that idea, but I did. Um, the other one, I suppose you could say that it was a hard choice to come to UVA from, from um, Santa Clara and leave, leave California with, our, with my children. And, um, but that was professionally a, a no brainer, absolutely no brainer because I mean, the people at Santa Clara had been wonderful. It was a wonderful place to begin teaching because they were just, you know, they were, they were young and wet behind the ears, just like I was. And so we just, I just had a, a great time there and I learned a lot, um, but it was time for me to move on because I just was, you know, I guess I'm, I was just more sort of ambitious in a scholarly way. I wanted to be with people who were really, really interested in law. Um, so um, the other hard decision I think was what to write about because I was really discouraged from writing about what I wanted to write about. 
And I just said, well, to hell with it. I'm going to write about what I'm going to write about. I, I sort of don't care. Um, and, and that was probably sort of dumb, but I, again, I, um, that's been sort of my lodestar in a way is that you have to pay attention to what it is that is, you know, working, working in your brain and how you can, you know, maybe understand something or contribute something, not what other people always tell you to do. So. That seems exactly right. Did, I just wonder, it, it does seem as though coming to Virginia, I understand that that made a lot of sense professionally, but it did mean that you left California. And I think of, I think of you and Michael as being such California people was, is that something that you, did you experience that as a loss to have to kind of trade that place for yeah. this, you know, for this professional place? Right. Um, you know, when I left California, my boys were seven and four or eight and five. And um, California, I'm, so, I'm going like this because California was sort of, you had, you, oh my God, the next new thing, the next new thing, the next new thing. And it was sort of jagged in that way. And there was not any past to connect to. I didn't have much family and I sort of wanted to be at a place where it was a little bit slower for them and had been um, you know that there was some history there so it was hard for them in particular it was hard for our oldest son Eric who who lives there now lives in Mill Valley Thank God he does, because I'm not sure why you think of Michael and me as as California people. But the fact is that we go back there, um, you know, absent COVID, we we go we would go back uh, about every three months because we love to be with them and we love it's beautiful and that's where we met and so forth. So, but the sense of loss, um, no, I don't think so. I've never been um, a person who has this feeling of, um, I don't know what the initials are, but this feeling of being, maybe I'll be left out, you know, or maybe- FOMO. Yeah, FOMO. Fear of, fear of what? Fear moving, of missing out. Fear of missing out. Um, but in, but in, in California, you just sort of had to because it was, it was going on. So, um, so, it's a good question. It's a beautiful, but luckily I haven't had to give California up because, so yeah, so, yeah. That's so good. That's so good. All right. There's a question about what advice would you give to a current 1L who, in, who aspires to enter legal academia someday? Uh, in particular, are there particular classes or professors to take particular extracurriculars? Any advice about if you might yeah. want to enter legal academia in the future? Right. Um, well, I don't know what professors to take now. I mean, I've been gone for 10 years. I would say take Professor Kendrick, definitely. Um, but <laughs> um, I think that the most important advice I would give is to, to pay attention to what it is you're, you're interested in and whether you like, most importantly, do you like 
the kind of work that professors do? Do you like to sit by yourself in a room surrounded by books or a screen that comes up with different stuff constantly and try to work something out that is hard? And do you like making footnotes? And do you like, I mean, do you like the whole scholarly enterprise and, and what it entails for your life? Because I think it's, a, it's sort of like watching a movie with all these successful people and they never are shown working. Like the professors are shown, you know, there they are teaching their classes and interacting with students and everything and the, the really hard work that professors do or some of the, I mean, teaching is really hard. I think it certainly was for me. Um, it's really hard to do scholarship, I think. And so just be sure that you like that and that you think that law is just about the most interesting thing that you could possibly imagine spending your life at. Because, because I think you need to feel that way if you're gonna be a professor and, and be able to enjoy it and enjoy the teaching piece where trying to convey both skill and knowledge and also an appreciation of how, um, of, what, of what the legal world is about, what law is about to students. So, and, and in terms of um, courses, I guess I would say just in general, but this is kind of, I would, this is what I always told students. I, I don't know about you, what kind of advice you give them. But I would always say, just take, you know, they're important basic courses to take. You know, you just take the menu of basic courses. Make, get yourself a well-rounded legal education. And in particular, this would be my advice. If, if, you're, if, you're a, if you find yourself of a conservative mind, take from, from non, take from liberal professors. If you're of a liberal mind, take from conservative professors at least once, at least once. Um, and take classes where you don't really think you're going to, you know, even if you want to do con law constantly and that's all you want to do, take some private law classes. Understand what the legal system is that the Constitution sort of um, overlays or under, underlays or whatever. Um, understand how the whole thing works. So, so that's just get the best legal education you can and the, and the broadest legal education you can and be sure you love it. So that's, what would you say? It's a great question. I love the idea of making sure you're covering both public law and private law and making sure you're taking from professors with different perspectives. I think that that's really important. and. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was thinking about where to go to law school, it seemed like this was a place to get a great legal education, um, just top to bottom, not not just con law, just, you know, everything. Um, and that was part of what drew me to it. Um, well, it's yeah, it's a great question. And, and I like also, you know, I try to tell people to take take those foundational courses, but don't think of it as a have to like, you know, 
people are telling you you have to take evidence, you have to take corporation. Think about where those classes are going to get you. That's a passport to right. your goals, you know, and partly you're figuring out what your goals are, but partly also, you know, you might know where it is you want to get. And think about, you know, if, if you want to, if you want to be a trial attorney, think about what evidence can do for you. You know, that's a set of skills that you're going to use um, instead of a have to that's being imposed on you. Yeah, that I think that's a great way to think about it. And I, I think, I bet that at least half the people who practice tax law had no idea before they took their first tax course that they were going to like it. I wish I had taken tax earlier than I did. I took baby tax the fall of my third year of law school, and I really wish that I had taken it earlier. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, yeah. What about, what do you think about, I mean, I, I think you're completely right about, you know, if you want to be a professor, you need to be able to be by yourself, pursuing an idea doggedly, you know, working through the research, working through the footnotes. Do you have recommendations about how to, how to, how students can figure out if they like that? Uh, taking, yeah. taking classes where you write papers, doing a journal, you know, what do you think about ways to get that experience in law school? Yes, that's, a, that's good. I think that um, to, I think you should definitely take classes where you have to write. And obviously journal experience is, you know, um, the best path in that way, because that's, a, it is a forcing mechanism. So not only do you have to write, but you have to learn to edit and understand in that process what, what makes a, a good piece, what, what makes and how the thing works from beginning to end. So, um, so yes, a write, writing and, and take, you know, Another thing to do is to try to work with a professor on an independent project. Now, the thing about the independent projects is you have to get a topic yourself. That's really hard. I, I think I've, I've lost students who, who've come to me and said, I'd like to write something under you. And I said, well, do you have a topic? And they say, well, no, don't you have something that I could write? And, you know, I, the important thing is it's got to be what that was my thing it has to be their thing so yeah so writing is good they have to learn they have to do the whole thing I mean if you want to be a professor if you think you want to be a professor um you also have to get to know some professors more so than otherwise I think it's important because um you need them for uh for you know, I, I guess you have to play a strategic game. You need them because you need professors to recommend you for the kind of jobs that you want to get and to help you along and to sort of so, and you need them so that they really know your work and know you. So that's important to do. Something that I uh, say sometimes, and I don't know if you think this is true or not, but that um, one way to figure out if, if being a professor is maybe something that might be appealing to you is to ask yourself, you know, do I want to take paper classes? Do I want to get to know my professors and come by after, you know, during office hours and that sort of thing? And, and do I want to, you know, what I, what I find being on a journal interesting, although I, I had to come and ask professors, what is a journal for? You know, I really didn't have any sense of it, right? So if you need to ask these questions, please do. You know, that's, I ask lots of people those questions. Um, but if all of that sounds good to you and sounds like what you would be doing in law school anyway, 
then great. You know, you don't you don't have to change anything. Just do okay. law school the way you want to do it. If it sounds like something that's not appealing to you, then think about whether that is actually what you want to do or not. But, you know, if it's really something that's speaking to you, it might be that these are the things you'd be doing anyway, getting to know your professors, writing some papers, all these sorts of things. And then, you know, just do those things. Go out there, you know, your first job's not going to be an academic job, but, you know, you've got all those building blocks and you can be working toward it. That's right. I mean, I think of, um, well, it's interesting. I think of, of our good friend who's recently become a judge who, um, who did law school in, in that way. And the great thing about him was he never seemed to be doing it strategically. And maybe he was, but he did everything because it was so interesting and he wanted to do a good job. And of course, that's just advice that is um, whatever you want to do. Do law school with 150% of your effort. Just do it the best you can. Give it. And if you don't want to do that, then don't think of becoming a professor, but you might want to think about not being a lawyer. So, you know, there are there, there are clues from how you like law school and whether you like it and so forth about what you should be doing in your future. So, yeah. Oh God, it's so easy to know what people should do when they're young. <laughs> yeah. So Although, sometimes that can be really helpful. Like your professors who said, Hey, I think you should apply for this job, you know, and they were right about that. Yeah, so, they were. They yeah. were. I know. And one of the professors who did that, um, he became dean of American University Law School, I think. And we used to see them. Um, he he used to go to the opera and on Sunday with all the ancients. We would all go there on the Sunday matinee, and it was really fun. And he was always there, and it was so fun to see him and stay connected to him for for several years. We saw him so, and I. I was always so grateful to him. I mean, I just wanted to get down on my knees and say, thank you, thank you, so. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Lillian, do you have any last words, last thoughts? No, I don't, Leslie. It's so nice of you to listen so patiently to me. I, I do wanna remind people that, um, I don't wanna be too self-conscious about this, but, but my life, unfolded in a very different way from the way yours is and will, and the way young people who are students now will. And there's nothing bad or wrong about that. It's just a fact of the way the culture has changed. And so in some sense, and that's one of the reasons when, when I retired, I thought it's, um, it's good because although there are some very important truths about life and living and for example what you just said about you know when you when you're going to law school do law school you know do it the best you can um that's that's advice that a 20 year old can give it's advice that an 80 year old can give um but but it does color sort of my my memories my recollections my tolerance i mean i look back people say oh my god you were the only woman in the law school and I look back on that and and it's it was sort of benign I mean it wasn't it wasn't horrible it was very lonely but it wasn't horrible so 
So I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but I think I'm going to the end. I think it's time to call this little event. I think the fire's burning out and I have to. <laughs> I like that we take the metaphor all the way to the conclusion. Yes. It's so good. Bad children. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Well, it's been so lovely talking with you. I really appreciate it so much. And I'm going to ask Chloe and Donna Faye if they have any um, closing words or goodbyes. But thank you so much, Lily. And it's been it's been such a pleasure. It's, it's always fun to talk about myself. So embarrassed to say that, but it's true. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Chloe, Donna Faye. Thank you guys oh. so much. We really appreciate it. That was fantastic. Um, Thank you so much for your time this evening and for dedicating your uh, time with us. We know you guys have a lot of other things you could could have been doing tonight, so we appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for asking me. I was really um, touched by the invitation. <laughs>